0: So what we're going to do is what we always do here, we're going to be hungry for the Word of God and we're going to be easily blessed, right? So that going into even 2019, uh, you don't have any worries about having God-centered, biblical preaching, but also God-centered, big, biblically hungry people here to receive God's Word and respond. So let's, let's pray right now that, that the Holy Spirit would give us that hunger and that we would abandon all fear, all doubt, all unbelief, and meet God right here in His Word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you ourselves, our our lives this morning, and we invite uh, you to speak to us through your Scripture. It is revelation itself. We don't have to go there and meet you in your revelation. There's nothing special that your Spirit has to conjure out of it to make it uh, your Word or your revelation. It is that, and so what... We have to pray as as that we would abandon all unbelief, all doubt, all flesh that would in any way resist what is the revelation of Almighty God and his word here this morning. So God prepare us to receive what is your word, prepare us to be encouraged by it and challenged in our faith. We abandon all doubt, we abandon all unbelief, we, we give to you all of our sins now, repenting of that, so that there would be nothing that would stand in the way of us receiving all of the good gifts that you have for us as you speak to us here this morning, and we do so in Jesus' name, amen. Also, I want to remind you that uh, we've got communion coming up, so you're preparing yourself for communion even now and as you go through... Uh, the scripture with me. You're going to be turning to Luke chapter 1 as we start our series on Righteous Yet Afraid. And while you're turning there, I want to say hi to my wife who's in the nursery right now helping out in the nursery. Um, She wasn't able to be here last Sunday and now she's serving in the nursery this Sunday because she loves her church and she loves all the young people that have babies. If you're a young person that has a baby or a toddler, raise your hand, wave at me. Yeah, my wife is serving you this morning, and if you would like to do the very same thing and serve your church by serving in the nursery, you can stop by the children's ministry uh, kiosk and and offer yourself to do exactly that. If you want to discuss what we are going to be looking at in the Righteous Yet Afraid series on Zechariah this morning further, and you're not a part of an adult life class yet, we invite you to come down to New Community and to join one of those small group table groups ...for discussion as we explore the passage even further and make it all the way to to verse uh, 80 uh, in that passage. That uh, reference up there is incorrect. It should say Luke 5 to 23 is where we're going. But anyway, you're you're there and you're ready for it. Also, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do this week. I'm going to invite my friends and my neighbors... To first know well. Now, I'm probably not gonna bat a thousand on that. I might not even bat 500 actually in all of those invitations that I extend, but I'm going to continue as God has led me by His Spirit to certain individuals, I'm going to continue to invite those individuals into environments with me in which I can get them more ready to meet Jesus Christ and to know Him as their Savior. So I've already been impressed by God through prayer about who I'm going to invite, and that's over a dozen people, by the way. So if you see me with some, with some folks uh, next Sunday at First Noel, one of them will probably be a homebound worshiper that my wife and I uh, bring in, but it also might be some friends and neighbors, and please be gracious and hospitable to them. But I'm praying that you would, by faith, reach out and extend that invitation. And here's the thing. If you extend an invitation to someone and they say no, guess what happens the second time that you extend an invitation to something else uh, involving the church? That The chances of them saying yes goes up by 40%. If you show persistent love and care for those individuals, they will respond to you. All right, why is this passage so significant this morning Luke chapter 1? Because, really, it's the Christmas story. We've heard the Christmas story. We know the Christmas story. Every Christmas, we have a Christmas series. Why do we have to go through this story here yet again? Well, because we can go here and we can ask ourselves, how am I like Zachariah? How am I like Elizabeth, a woman who didn't even show herself for five months because she knew that the promise that God had made to Zechariah and to her, that they would have a son, John the Baptist, was so amazing that the people wouldn't even believe until they could show her little bump to them. How am I like Zechariah? When Zechariah asks the question, how can this be? How, will, how, how is this possible? When the angel meets with him, What does the text ask of me? If I were to insert myself in this situation and ask questions of faith from my life right now, how would it speak to me? You know, in the children's ministry on Wednesday nights at Big Life, we're studying the entire Old Testament. If you have a child... Or if you have neighbors that have kids, you ought to invite them to come and be with us at Big Life. I invite my neighbors, and I bring my neighbors' kids so they can hear more about Jesus. And we're there, and we've been working through the books of the Old Testament, and we went through Torah, we've gone through the historical works, and now we're in the, the writings or the literary works, meaning the Psalms and poetry and the book of Job. And so we're also memorizing the entire 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. Our kids, our six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds are memorizing the entire 20th chapter of the book of Exodus. How's your verse memorization going? It's pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And that's why I walk up to kids. You see me walking up to kids even on Sunday morning. I walked up to Evie Ferrick last week and I said, Evie, remember the, and she goes, Sabbath. I said, how many days? She goes, six days shall you do your normal work. Because she was quoting back to me what she's been memorizing. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 and 9. But we're there, and we were there last Wednesday. Love it. Love my small group that I lead with Jeremy Eifert. It's awesome. And we studied Job. And with... Uh, and the Bible calls Job a righteous man like no other. In fact, even Satan acknowledges that before God. God says, have you considered my servant, servant Job, who is righteous in all things? And Satan says, well, let me mess with him some, and he'll eventually curse you. Just, just let me just, just ruin his life, and he'll curse you. At, at the end of all of this, there's no faith. So Satan says, I'll find a weak spot in his faith. And we're watching this great big life video about that that explains the entire book of Job and brings some of the the critical lessons of the book of Job right to the hearts of our young second and third graders. And Job does that. It happens. He loses everything and yet he's still blessing God, sitting on a pile of ashes that used to be his home. And his wife has walked away from faith and shouted, curse God and die. And his friends have come to him and sat with him for seven days in silence, seeing if he's going to react. And then they begin, They start out by saying, how must you have sinned to have all of this happen to your life? I mean, the guy's taking pounding after pounding after pounding after pounding. And we're in our small group, and we're talking about this with our second and third grade boys. And we're asking them about Job's faith. And, and my ministry teammate, Jeremy, he says to the boys, So after all of this, what does Job say? And one of the boys raises his hand and says, Job says, Hey God, what's your problem? What's your problem? I thought that was a great answer. Because Job has finally reached the end of his faith. God has not reached the end of his faithfulness, but Job has reached the end of his faith. And he says, what Satan said that Job would do, Job did. He said, curse God and die. And I said, yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. I said, but then what did God say? And another one of the boys raised his hands, and the other boy said, God said, hey, Job, you just don't get it, do you? I do all of this stuff and you can't even see it. I went, that's true, that's right. And Job will finally, after this dialogue that he finally has, this personal dialogue that he has with the God of heaven, not with his wife, not with his friends, not with anyone else, he has this dialogue with God in heaven, and God reveals to him the majesty of all of his work in creation Job then says, Therefore, I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees. Therefore, I despise myself and repent and dust. And ashes. The result of all of that was that Job came to the end of his faith and met a God who was faithful and his faith grew even more. But he repented of his unbelief. And the amazing thing that's going to happen here this morning as we even transition to communion is we're going to be confronted in our unbelief. The place where we reach the point of saying, how can this be? How could this possibly happen? And it's going to happen through an individual that is called Righteous we're going to look at a text that says that this man and his wife were blameless in all of the statutes of the Lord. You would want to be this person. You would want to be Zechariah. You would want to be Elizabeth. (laughs) You would want to be as noble and as God-honoring as they were with their lives. And yet, they are going to come to the end of their faith, and they are going to wonder out loud, Zechariah, in the presence of an angel, how can this be so you're going to get the chance this morning here to be very human to meet Zechariah and Elizabeth in the text because they're very very human even though they're righteous they still are going to be humans that struggle and struggle with their faith and you're going to be granted the permission this morning to come to the end of whatever your faith is the end of whatever your waiting is the end of whatever your longing is and to meet God there. So how does our story begin? It begins in yearning silence. It begins in yearning silence. Boy, those, those two, that phrase, yearning silence, that's just pregnant with emotion and feeling, isn't it? And this passage is filled with emotion and feeling. It describes the fear of Zechariah. It explains the wonderment of the people after they hear what's going to happen It proclaims a declaration from the angel that joy and gladness is going to come because of the birth of John, who was going to be great in the eyes of the Lord. This passage is filled with emotion. It's got feeling. If we insert ourselves here, we've got to come as emoters. We've got to come as feelers to this passage. Our story begins in yearning silence. Why in yearning silence? Well, because... It is that very moment in which all the people that worship God in his temple in Jerusalem are prostrate in silent prayer waiting for that specific priest who was permitted to go in and delight the altar of incense, so that the smoke would rise up from that altar out of the temple, so that the people would see that smoke rise and symbolically understand that their prayers had been answered by the Lord. And so there is this silence, but even at this time and at this very place, there's a yearning in this silence as well, and the scripture is going to reveal some of that to us as we look at verse 5. Let's read verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, okay? So here's the story. In verse 5, there is a priest, Zechariah. He's of uh, the division of of, of Abijah, a division uh, that was permitted to go twice a year into Jerusalem to perform some of the priestly duties. After Ezra and his reform... With the, some of the rebuilding of the temple in the 5th century B.C., there were new um, uh, institutions created in which these priests were permitted to go in and perform some of the religious duties, sacrifices, and ministries there at the temple. All right, And Zechariah is one of them. And who is he married to? Well, he's got this wife from the daughters of Aaron. Okay, So she is a daughter of the Levites, a Levitical upbringing, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, verse 6 says, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And so here is some of the yearning that exists in the silence, right? Because if you're a righteous person... The understanding in their day and the understanding of just all Jewish literature, of all Jewish culture was, is the righteous are blessed by God. And what greater blessing is there, says the Proverbs, than to be blessed with children? And here are Elizabeth and Zechariah, two people that you would want to be, that you would want to model to all of the people, and yet they're without children. Not only that, they've longed for a child and they're advanced in years. In other words, they've prayed all the way to the twilight of that possibility and they're beyond it. Now it's darkness. Now it's night. Now there's no way. In verse 9 it says, Now he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty. Like I said, out of 20,000 possible priests that would have existed in the land in that day, he is selected out, his division is selected out. Out of the 50 that would be responsible for all of uh, the, the, the temple ministry for that week. He alone is selected out by Lot. It's amazing. And that's how they used to do things. They would, they would ask God a question and they would select someone by Lot in his day. And yet we know that this is completely providential. This is the sovereign hand of God that is selecting Zechariah for this moment. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Of all of the privileges, this, other than that of the high priest one day a year, going behind that cloth, the very holy of holies, and offering up sacrifice for all of the people on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, this is the most special privilege of all. You would be there at the altar, feet away from the Holy of Holies, standing before an altar that represents both the angelic presence of all of heaven and the personal presence of God Almighty, performing this ministry. This was such a privilege that you're only permitted once in a lifetime to do it. It's a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity there. And what does the name Zechariah mean? Well, Pastor Jeremy is studying Hebrew, and he reminded us in our devotional on Tuesday that Zachar means to remember. Yes, the word Zechariah, the name Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And what does Elizabeth's name mean? The name Elizabeth means the oath of God, or the God who makes oath. So if you put their names together, Zechariah and Elizabeth, as a couple, are the Lord remembers his covenant. The Lord remembers his promise. Isn't that beautiful? How God orchestrates all of this? And that's exactly what's going to be declared by the angel in just a couple of moments. But let's think about their personal longing. No child, barren. Bearing the burden of childlessness. If you were righteous, the Lord was supposed to reward you. And Edersheim says in his commentary... On Luke chapter 1. For many a year, this must have been the burden of Zachariah's prayer, but the burden also of reproach. Remove from me, God, the reproach of childlessness, which Elizabeth seemed always to carry around with her. They waited together these many years till the evening of life, the flower of hope had closed its fragrant hope. And still the two sat together in the twilight, content to wait in the loneliness. Having faith beyond reason. We started out in verse 5 where it said, In the time of Herod, king of Judea. And why is that significant? Why is that important? Well, it adds to our understanding of the yearning that exists in that great silence. Because here's the thing. The Herodian kings, they they were not kings that were raised up by the people or through the purposes and plans of God at all. They were puppet kings that were, that were uh, established by the Romans after the Greeks and, 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 and uh, the Egyptians had come and set up their own puppet kings. The Romans now r- raise up the Herodians and Herod the Great. You know what he was known for? He was known for his great opulence and his harshness, his harsh treatment of the people. You cross him, you will suffer. In fact, we know if we follow the story further, and we will on the 16th of December, when we meet Herod the Great, we look at his character, we know that he is obsessed with finding this king of the Jews and making sure that he kills him to secure the rest of his rule and his reign. It's in the time of Herod, king of Judah, in a time when Jerusalem is corrupt, where priests are being politically influenced by a corrupt government, a government that does not even know the Lord God of Israel. There has not been a visual miracle or sign since the time of Elisha, Nearly a thousand years before. No prophet had spoken since Malachi over 400 years before. The Old Testament is full of angelic appearances. And yet there have been none in nearly a millennium. And this is the moment where we draw our attention and we draw our faith right in Luke. As we turn to verse 11. Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Here's the point. The last prophecy that is heard in the Old Testament is the one that you're looking at on the screen right now. And what does it promise? It promises a merciful turning of the hearts of the children through an individual that's going to come with the spirit of Elijah. It's not going to be judgment as could be expected and would be deserved. It's going to be mercy. It's going to be grace. Now, insert the picture of the altar there for me. Will you do that? Now, kids especially that are doing the sermon notes here this morning, if you don't have your sermon notes, grab them out of the front of the pew. Um, but that's a picture of that altar. To the right would have been the presence of God, to the left would have been the angelic presence, and there would have been ministry at that altar each day. So that's a picture of the altar that they would go to. Now now go to the next picture. And here is just a depiction, of course. We don't have a picture of Zechariah and the angel, but this is just a depiction there. All right, of Zechariah, and it covers a few things that are important. Number one is the angel looks like an angel, and Zechariah looks like an old dude. Okay, And so it covers a couple of good and important truths there. Another thing that it covers is, is that the angel is standing to the right. The angel is standing in the presence of God. Not where an angelic appearance would be expected, on the left side of the altar, but on the right side of the altar. So what strikes Zechariah immediately a fear of judgment. An angel coming to declare judgment upon his people. Surely it would be deserved with this corrupt nation that they were living with. And so, so, so kids that are filling out your sermon notes here this morning, I have a special challenge for you here this morning. Where, it's, where it says that you can draw a picture. Think of the picture of Zachariah. In the visitation of this angel by the altar. And draw me a picture of that. I want to read that in your sermon notes. I want to look at that in your sermon notes as you turn them in this week. A special challenge to you. Now, Zechariah was chosen. It was a privilege that would occur only once in a priest's lifetime. Out of 18 to maybe 20,000 priests... It fell upon him by lot. And the morning sacrifice would have just happened. 9 a.m. was the time of the morning sacrifice. And so other priests would have been performing that morning sacrifice. And through that sacrifice, the people would be aware of the fact that atonement was needed even for their prayerful approach to God. And so sacrifice is performed so that they can approach God. And Hebrews tells us, That this is how we can approach God Almighty and we can go directly to his throne. We go through Jesus, our eternal sacrifice. Fifty priests would be handling all of the responsibilities of the temple. But these would all stop at the moment of awaiting the lighting of the altar of incense. The other 49 priests would stop their duties and their responsibilities and with the people... The remaining priests would prostrate themselves in silence before God outside of the temple. They would prostrate and wait. In a posture of complete obedience and reverence to God, they would wait. What would they wait? They would wait for that priest who had that privilege of burning that incense on that altar to come out and to declare a benediction upon the people. In fact, if you look at the Talmud and some other instructions in Jewish writings... There is definitely the urging to the priest to get that business of lighting the altar of incense done quickly so the people don't wait very long and wonder, what's going on? Where's the priest? And yet there's going to be an extended period of silence. All the unspoken worship, all the longings, all of the intersections filling a very appropriate silence on that day. On that morning, 10 times in the book of Psalms alone, the psalmists they cry out, How long, O Lord? And you've you've cried that. As a faithful, as a righteous person, as a person that I would want to be, as a person that has obeyed God in so many ways, in your faithfulness, you've reached faithlessness. You've gotten to that point. Someone walked up to me today, this morning, and said, Our niece just died. This weekend, it was completely sudden. We had no idea. She might as well have just said, I, I, I'm struggling to understand where is God? I speak to another individual. I say, how you doing? And that individual says, not well, and shares with me her story. And a part of that is the seeking, the yearning silence of all of us saying, God, where are you? God, when will you? There. And we've all been there. And the psalmist cry out, how long, O oh Lord. They tire of their waiting. They long by faith for the answer to their prayers. The psalmist in Psalm 90 verse 13 says this, How long, O Lord, and then declares, return to us. (sighs) What reassurance there is by faith when we have that visitation from Almighty God who has returned to us, has met with us individually, and whose power has manifested itself to me alone. And that is this moment of yearning silence and we can all meet God there because we've been there and we're maybe there right now here this morning and it's a once in a lifetime opportunity look at verses 11 through 17 and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord boom everything is changing not in a thousand years And yet, this angel that appears, he doesn't walk up to Abraham. It's not out in the wilderness somewhere. It's in the very temple of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. The word there is terassoed. It means to be inwardly thrown. It means to be shaken on your insides to where it definitely would show on your outsides. Scripture in Jewish history had never recorded a personal encounter with an angel in that holy place. What is more is that this angel is not standing at the appointed left side of the altar, but on the right. He's standing in the place of God. And Zechariah would have known the corruption of Israel... Zechariah would have known what was going on with the priesthood he would have known about those false puppet kings he would have known that this was not a nation dedicated to god the way god had intended he would have known that judgment would be deserved and he's tarassoed he's thrown he's uh, he's thrown by god and by the presence of this angel and you and i you and i we both know that we are undeserving of god's mercy we all know that there's a fearful day of judgment that would cause trembling for any who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it's coming. Jesus is going to return, and he's going to judge everybody. And yet the finger of judgment will pass by every single person that is covered by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus Christ. Zechariah's is thrown. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard The first thing that the angel says, this is so incredible, there are two personal statements made by God through the angel to Zechariah. One of the things that we all struggle to grasp by faith is, how could this God of the universe, how could he right now be thinking of me? How could this God of the universe that's in charge of putting the sun and the stars in the sky of sustaining all of the winds and the waters and the waves of the earth and all of the animals and all of creation, who holds the nations and the kings course through his hands, how can it be that these 8 billion people reduce down to just me and God? And yet the first two responses of the angel are directed from God directly to Zechariah at his point of need. Don't be afraid. The Lord has heard your prayer. This is the kind of God that you have. This is the God that you have. A God that will meet you right where you are. A God that meets you right in your point of need. A God that is able to come so close to you that he would wrap himself in human flesh and come as a child to this world. That he would walk with you and struggle with all the things, struggle in this world of sin and yet would not sin and give himself as a sacrifice and show his love so great for you that in his great mercies you and I would be taken from dead to alive in Jesus Christ. The angel says, don't be afraid for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth This is not just personal comfort. This is powerful revelation. God is giving you a son who will be that Elijah that Malachi chapter 4 talked about who will bring many back to the God of Israel so that God can show his mercy. And what does the name John mean in the Hebrew? It means the Lord Jehovah has been gracious. So Zechariah and Elizabeth The Lord remembers His covenant, will show His covenant graciously through John as He turns the hearts of the people. And it says there that Zechariah had a great struggle of unbelief. In verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And don't you feel a little sorry for Zechariah at this moment? You're going, Oh, man! The scripture called you blameless. The scripture called you righteous. And your first response is to go, no way. Can't be. Your first response is a response of unbelief, Zechariah? And yet the revelation of how redemption would take place is too wonderful For him to understand in this moment the communication that reveals that not judgment but that grace will be upon him and on God's people and some of us would think wait this man would be steeped in the old testament he would know the story of Abraham backwards and forwards that God through old age and barrenness would create an entire people for himself when Abraham is 90 years old Wouldn't Zechariah remember that? And here, a very similar situation is happening, and yet a very similar question of unbelief occurs. A people that Zechariah has just prayed for as he has lit the incense. What was his prayer? Was this prayer, that continual prayer that he and Elizabeth had had, all of their marriage for a child? Was it also for the redemption of Israel? Was it both? Now the angel says, God's going to create A redeemed people. And he's going to use this son, John, to help do that. Just as Elijah, in the period of the kings, turns hearts back to the one true king, the Lord Almighty, so now would John, whose name is the Lord has been gracious, he would turn the hearts of the people toward repentance. Verse 21 says, And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. What's going on? And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he was making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So the people, there's something very unique. There's something very special. And there's going to be another period of waiting. Five months before we even see the little bump in Elizabeth's tummy. Nine months before Zechariah will speak and the people will go from wonder to wonderment. And in these days his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Elizabeth basically says very quietly to herself there, God has answered my prayer. And where do we identify with this struggle and with this journey, we identify because we're human too. And we struggle with unbelief. The most righteous person here comes to the end of his or her faithfulness. It's hard to believe. It's very hard to believe that the gospel comes to him to struggle with this belief that God would come and meet me right now, right here where I am, where I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and I've I've waited and I've waited and I've waited and I've waited. And there may be someone here this morning who said, I've prayed enough. I'm tired of waiting. And now I'm gonna compromise. I'm gonna go get what I want by whatever means is necessary to get it. And that's living in unbelief. And there may be a person here this morning that's saying, I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for my spouse, and I still don't see a change. I still don't see a change. And so by golly, I'm going to change him. By golly, I'm going to change her. Maybe there's someone who's prayed for deliverance. Maybe someone who's been in a struggle of sin and continues to struggle in that rut of sin and said, I've prayed and I've prayed and I've longed and I've longed. And I've waited in the silence and I still haven't heard. And you're ready, you're ready to quit. You're ready to compromise. You're ready to just give up. And where does our passage tell us this morning? Where does the Holy Spirit inspire in your heart of faith here this morning? That in that yearning silence, there is a God who says, don't be afraid. I've heard your prayer. Redemption draws nigh. Stand in the heart of the psalmist of Psalm 90 who says, Oh God, how long, O oh Lord, return to us and hear by faith again the promise that God will and that God does and that God delivers. Redemption is coming. Receive even the comfort as a believer in Jesus Christ and not only has he come, come once, he's coming again. And he's going to establish his earthly reign for a thousand years to an eternal state of righteousness where there will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. How assuring it is to be human with God and yet to be met by faithful God in my faithfulness, in my struggle. It's hard, hard to believe that the gospel comes to me It's even hard to believe that the gospel not only would come to me personally through Jesus, but then the gospel would work through me and the gospel would use me to present itself to a world that needs the gospel. What we have here is a story of God saying, I'm going to take Zachariah and Elizabeth and John and I'm going to use them for my glory. Amazing. So let's bring this to our neighborhood as we prepare ourselves for communion here this morning, and Jeremy, you can bring your team up here. What are the lessons of faith? Well, the first one is this: It's impossible, excuse me, impossible things do happen through the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do. Believe it again, church. Believe it again, listening on the podcast. things that are even that even the righteous struggle with to understand person who has sat here this morning and said yeah that's right god i have been praying i have been waiting and you've got the heart of that second grader from wednesday night who said hey god what's your problem be reminded by god's word this morning that one of those impossible things that god did was bring the gospel right to us through jesus in human form And then gave us the privilege to be the ones in human form that present what he's doing on this earth. And your waiting may have led you to a tired flesh to believe in less than the impossible. And God's calling you here this morning to believe again in the impossible. To say, this change I have prayed for, it's going to happen. It will happen. In God's time and in God's way, it is settled. I won't have to compromise. I won't have to sin in my unbelief to get what I want. I'm going to trust the Lord. Two weeks ago, dozens of you raised your hands to me and said, I need the Lord, I need the Lord, I need the Lord, I need the Lord, as we were concluding in worship. This morning, would you lift your heart to God and say, God, I give you my faith. I give you my faith again, and I trust you, Lord for the impossible, because God calls you by faith back to the gospel of the impossible. That's why there's going to be so much gladness and rejoicing, the angel says, "It's because unbelievable God is going to be unbelievable, and yet we're going to believe it. Second, our faith is always a reason to hope and rejoice. You have been met personally. You have been met powerfully. You have the evidence in you. Your faith is, is always a reason to hope and rejoice. Zechariah had an opportunity of a lifetime. Do you realize what we have, church? We have a lifetime of opportunity. This revelation we can make known every day of our lives. We can live it every day of our lives. We don't need special circumstances. We are the special circumstance. We literally have Jesus living in us through the Holy Spirit. And finally this, living righteously while waiting. You're waiting. You're waiting. And I'm praying with you while you're waiting. And I'm waiting. And I'm waiting. And And there's Just kind of a yearning silence, right? You wish you didn't have to wait as long as you're waiting. You wish you wouldn't have to wait more. But stay righteous. Keep waiting. Keep praying. It's all going to be accomplished by the Lord. His redemption is coming. It's coming to us, His people. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we meet you through Jesus and through the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, and we go right to your throne room now, and we thrust all of our faith back at you, and we say, God, fill us with faith. And Even as we look at this sacrifice here of the body and the blood of Jesus, we know that the Lord God has remembered his covenant because he gave us Jesus. You gave us your son, Lord God. Even your own son, you are not sparing so that we might become the righteousness of God so that we could have this great relationship and we could interact with you even right here and right now. And so, Father, we meet with you spiritually. All of the faithers, all of the waiters, all of those who are righteous and yet still afraid. God, we meet with you here and now. We ask, Holy Spirit, that, that you would have real dialogue with us. That there would be a holy exchange that goes on and there would be a new declaration in our hearts. We give you our unbelief we give you our faithlessness. And now, Father, in view of your mercies, in view of the fact that Jesus gave his body and his blood for us, we give you ourselves. We give you our whole lives. We lay ourselves down at the altar of sacrifice here this morning because your son did that very thing for us. It became a pleasing fragrance in your nostrils. He became the one sacrifice for sin for us. And we embrace it by faith. And we remember it here. This morning, as we begin to partake in both the body and the blood of Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, listening on the podcast or sitting here this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ... The communion here really can't be for you because the only way that it has any impact or any significance whatsoever is that it would cause you to remember the great thing that the Lord has done for you by giving you His Son. So what is a prerequisite to receiving the communion correctly is believing on Jesus Christ as your Savior. So if you do not believe on Jesus as your Savior, if you have not trusted that God so loves you personally, And it's so revealed to you powerfully that Jesus was willing to take your sin upon himself on that cross and to take it away from you so that you can live with God forever. Do that right now. Believe by faith. Believe by faith so that you can receive with real, genuine worship. And if you do place that trust in Jesus, I want to talk with you. Or if you are again here just this morning rededicating yourself to Christ, I want to have that conversation with you as well. I want to pray with you. Parents, work with your children to help them understand the meaning of communion. A child has, has professed faith in Jesus Christ. That child ought to be uh, helped through this remembrance so they can continue to exercise their faith in God's good gifts to them. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, uh, he took the bread, and he broke it, and he passed it all around. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. What Jesus was saying is, I want you to internalize something um, that's very experiential, so that you will constantly be able to remember me. Um, there's no further inside than inside. Inside is inside. And that's what Jesus was doing when he created this table of remembrance for us. This really isn't the body of Christ. It's just a metaphor. It's a symbol of the body of Christ. But we're going to take it together, church. Amen? Because we're collectively as one body going to remember the body and blood of Jesus. So please wait till all have received and we'll continue to give God our worship.